Hey, y'all, and welcome to the SB Nation College Football Recruiting Podcast. This is Bud Elliott, SB Nation's National Recruiting Director. I also run TomahawkNation.com, SB Nation's FSU site. Every week I talk about the news and recruiting, rumors, topics, uh, happenings in the world of recruiting. If you're listening to this, you're probably a college football recruiting diehard and are not somebody who is just casually into this, but uh, we do try to keep it uh, basic for them as well so they can kind of get into a little more to the world of college football recruiting. Every week I I start off with a look at the top commits and decommits of the week just to kind of get people caught up on the news. The big one this week, of course, is uh, Justin Foster out of uh, Shelby, North Carolina, Crest High School. Foster is a, in my opinion, a defensive end type prospect. Uh, he committed to Clemson this week over offers from, I believe, uh, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, a lot of schools in the Southeast that you would consider top schools. And, and Clemson gets another nasty player for its front seven, which has quite frankly been about as good as anybody's outside of Alabama under Brent Venables. So very, very good to see that for Clemson. Um, certainly a player who, who can help them. A lot. Now, will he play more as a stand-up role or more as a guy with, with his hand in the dirt? Given that Clemson runs more of a 4-3, I, I think he will probably end up playing more of that hand in the dirt role. He's six foot four, 250 pounds, according to his profile on 247 Sports. I've seen him. He certainly looks all of that. Now, uh, I believe he has slimmed down somewhat in, in recent, uh, in, in, in recent uh, years so that he, he's a little bit more agile. Maybe than he used to be, and I'll be very interested to see how he is used in Clemson's system as he continues to develop physically. He may be a guy who offers some versatility in that stand-up role, uh, but ultimately he could become a player who is a an impact guy as an edge rusher, as an edge defender for the Clemson Tigers, assuming that, that he sticks with his commitment. Foster becomes the uh, 14th commitment of the year for the Clemson Tigers. That's really uh, that's a nice number to be at right now. More nice, though, is actually how many four- and five-star commitments Clemson has. Uh, they have two five-stars in T. Higgins, a receiver out of Tennessee, and Hunter Johnson, a quarterback out of Indiana. Uh, Eleven of their 14 commitments are rated four- or five-stars. As you know, I'm very big on the blue-chip ratio, needing to sign more four- and five-star prospects than two- and three-stars if you want to contend at the highest level of college football. But, but a 79% blue-chip ratio right there. Uh, is really nice, and you have to figure Clemson is going to finish strong, and there's a very very uh, high chance that they make the college football playoff again this year, and then will become uh, one of a very very small handful of teams to have made the playoff in, in two separate seasons. If you look at Clemson's national ranking right now, uh, they're seventh. However, their average star rating is is, is pretty high. Uh, only Georgia, Alabama, and Ohio State, I believe have an aver- a, a higher average star rating right now. Um, several teams in front of Clemson are there, not because of, of quality, but because of quantity. Uh, Notre Dame has four more commitments than the Tigers do. Oklahoma has eight more commitments than than, L- or than, than Clemson does. LSU has five more commitments, and certainly all of those classes are good, and I'm not trying to disparage them. But on a player-for-player basis, Clemson has a top-five-level sort of average player basis right now. That's really impressive, and uh, look, Devil Swinney has a tremendous recruiting staff there in Clemson. They clearly have a, bi- a big-time thing going there. Uh, a lot of success on offense. Guys see that they can come in and play early and contribute in a high-flying offensive system, and then a defense that's, that's a very 
uh, physical, aggressive defense, and, and it starts up front for them. And, and Justin Foster, B.J. Foster, will uh, certainly help them to continue that in Death Valley. Something else that will make Clemson fans happy, but not South Carolina fans so much, is uh, T.J. Moore, a, a four-star offensive lineman out of Mallard Creek High School, a, a powerhouse high school in North Carolina. He was a, a South Carolina commitment from, from a while back. He ended up decommitting, and now a lot of people think he's going to flip to Tennessee. So um, that's a player, ultimately, that Clemson couldn't have to face, necessarily, if he goes to Tennessee. And uh, if you're an offensive player looking at South Carolina right now, certainly South Carolina is still selling the message, hey, playing time, hey, we're going we're to change this thing up. But other coaches are certainly in your ear telling you, look, this guy doesn't get offense. And the offense in South Carolina looks exactly the same as it looked at, at Florida, which is to say terrible under head coach Will Muschamp. We'll have to see if that ever changes around. But right now, if I'm recruiting in South Carolina, I'm going hard negative if you're an offensive player and saying you don't want to risk your college future on this guy ever figuring out offense because it, it, there's no guarantee that he will. He couldn't do it at Florida where you can get the best athletes in the world. And so far at South Carolina, the offense is, is really not, not happening. In fact, so far this year, uh, South Carolina's offense has yet to eclipse five and a half yards per play in any SEC game. Four nine seven against Vanderbilt, three four seven against Mississippi State, four one two against a terrible Kentucky defense that they lost that game as well, five uh, four against Texas A and M, five one three against Georgia. We spoke a couple months ago about how there was a shot for South Carolina to go bowling. Um, and I believe that at the time because they still had games against Mississippi State and Kentucky and, and East Carolina. But now it's very hard to see that happening. Uh, South Carolina still has games against Clemson left. They still have to play Florida. Still have to play Tennessee. Still have to play Missouri. Uh, look, South Carolina right now is 2-4. and four. you got to figure they're going to beat UMass and, and obviously Western Carolina to get to, 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 to four wins, are they going to be able to split Tennessee, Missouri, Florida, and Clemson? It, it seems pretty unlikely, especially because two of those, Florida and Clemson, are on the road. Uh, getting Tennessee at home doesn't seem all, all that likely this year. Tennessee seems pretty good. And then Missouri, I, I think, is more competent uh, overall than, than Tennessee or than, than South Carolina is. So it's going to be very interesting to, to see how South Carolina recruits down the stretch. They may have blown an opportunity here to go to a bowl game in Muschamp's first year because the, the A&M or the uh, Mississippi State and the Kentucky games were extremely winnable, and, and they just laid eggs in those games, especially the Mississippi State game where they got blown out. So interesting to track that and, and see how that goes. Right now the Gamecocks don't have as much momentum as they had about six weeks ago. We spoke about South Carolina's class, or, or Clemson's class rather, being a, a, a class with a, uh, a really high average recruit ranking. South Carolina – not so much. Uh, they, they have 20 commitments in the class. Five of them are rated four stars, which is actually pretty good by South Carolina standards. Right now, it's a top 15 class. But their average player rating, if you use the 247 ratings, is just 86.5, which is really not very good. And you're looking at only a 25% blue chip rate, which is honestly less than what Steve Spurrier brought in over the last four years. Now, obviously, recruiting had tailored off quite a bit in the last few years of Spurrier, and, and they had signed some kids who ultimately didn't make him to school. They had a lot of attrition problems. I think Muschamp will do better in his first four years than Spurrier did in his final four. Um, 
But the question is by how much, and they really need to hit the ground running because the SEC East is a very difficult division now, at least projecting into the future with, with Georgia really recruiting well. Tennessee uh, now backing up their recruiting with wins, which which should spur more good recruiting. And Florida under Jim McElwain doing good things as well. The other big commitment of, of the last week, Jacob Phillips, a uh, four-star linebacker prospect out of uh, Nashville area, East Nashville Magnet. Phillips is an excellent prospect. Uh, Oklahoma beat out a number of SEC schools for his signature. I think he can play inside. He can play outside. He can rush the passer. I think he's going to be able to stop the run. And I think he's actually useful in coverage as well. It'll be interesting to see how well he, he plays in coverage in the Big 12. And, and, and that's a conference that you really have got to be able to cover and space in in a lot of these games. Otherwise, you're not that useful. And a lot of these spread offenses, I know Ian Boyd wrote a good piece on this on SBNation.com this week, or, or maybe it's Football Study Hall, um, talking about how spread offenses are really good at isolating the weak link on defense. But I think Jordan Phillips is a fantastic athlete and a guy who can come in and contribute to, to uh, Oklahoma's defense pretty quickly. If you take a look at Oklahoma's overall class, it actually sits in the top five right now. 22 commitments, uh, 16 of the 22 are rated four or five stars. So this is a class that's up there, yes, on quantity, but also on quality. They, they really are, are doing a nice job. 73% blue chips is, is way above Oklahoma's rolling four-year average. I've previously written, if you go on SBNation.com and click on my name on the recruiting tab, you can see what, I, what I've put down about Oklahoma previously. They really have been mentioned as a national title contender of late. But the thing is, they're 2012 and 2013 classes. The, the, the guys who should be uh, you know, juniors and seniors right now, and even the 14 class, they, they really weren't that good. 2015 and 2016 classes were very talented. And Oklahoma... If it wants to get back to that national title level and not just be the big best in the Big 12, a, a league that has not won a national title in a decade, well, it needs to keep recruiting like this and not fall back to that 12, 13, 14 level. If it keeps doing this and it keeps bringing in more four and five stars, I know there are some questions about, you know, has have things tapered off under Bob Stoops and should Mike Stoops be, temp, be uh, Oklahoma's defensive coordinator, but... Part of the, the deal is talent, too. If Oklahoma keeps getting more talent, then it's going to have perhaps the best roster in the Big 12 at some point, and that will be enough not just to win the Big 12, but also to compete against programs like a Clemson or you know some of the SEC teams, a, a Florida State, a Ohio State, Michigan, those level teams. Right now, I don't know that, that Oklahoma's roster, especially its upperclassmen, really compare to some of those elite teams in college football. I guess we'll have to see if they can keep this pace up. But right now, they're off to a tremendous start. And 22 guys in this class already. If they just hold this together and add maybe a piece or two more, uh, folks in Norman are going to have something to celebrate. Also wanted to note that uh, DJ Gillins, a, a guy at a Pearl River Community College uh, in, in Poplarville, Mississippi, former, I believe, Wisconsin commit, uh, used to play uh, in Jacksonville in high school. I remember seeing him a couple of years ago at a camp. I think he went to Wisconsin and, and may have gotten hurt or, or didn't win the job. Uh, but a, a guy with some talent. Dual threat kid. Not a, a great runner, but but a, a decent runner. Six foot three, 205 pounds. A junior college quarterback going to Chad Morris' SMU Mustangs. 
we'll have to see what, what happens when he gets on campus there. But, but he has some ability to throw the football. And, and that would not surprise me if he contends for that job there at SMU. I know we don't talk about the smaller schools a whole lot on this show, but that, that's certainly one to watch. And at Texas A&M, uh, with, with Deshaun, or uh, with, with um, Miles Garrett most likely going pro this year, they need some somebody to step up at that strong side defensive end spot. Well, they may have had one now. Tyree Owens, a junior college kid out of uh, Kapaya Lincoln there in, in Mississippi as well. Six foot five, 290 pounds, only rated a three-star. Junior college rankings this time of year, in my opinion, are incredibly unreliable. I think it says something that Texas A&M was willing to take him in early October. They must have—I like what they've seen. I've not really seen him very much. I have not seen him in person. Uh, but Tyree Owens is a player based on the measurables and the film could certainly help out Texas A&M next year. Maybe lessen the blow of losing Miles Garrett some to the NFL. All right, next I want to talk about kind of the big feature I wrote this week, and and I thought this was going to take me a couple days to write, but in reality, I sat down and wrote it. Uh, in an afternoon, and sometimes words just flow, which is pretty cool. And other times they they don't. And other times it's just, it, it's a struggle. I guess it's kind of like football. But every year when I put out the blue chip ratio, which is the, the teams that we're looking at a bunch of factors, who has recruited well enough to win the national title? It's kind of a small list. It, it's usually between ten and fifteen teams nationally that that have the the baseline level of talent to, if they get there, to play with the big boys. And in order to get there, to have enough depth, to survive some injuries, to have enough talent to where if you lose a guy here or a guy there, it, it doesn't kill you on the year. And every year I get asked, what about this team? What about that team? What about this team and, and that team and, and all that? This year is not a good not a good year for the people that, that ask that. Not, not a good year at all. The four teams that I generally get asked about the most, outside of, of Oklahoma, which we've already discussed, and Oklahoma's a little bit more of a blue blood than, than the teams I want to talk about here. They say, what, what about Oregon? Oregon's been to two national title games in the last decade. They have. They also have no rings. What about Stanford? What about Michigan State? What about Baylor? What about TCU? Baylor's actually having a, a good year. Um, obviously, I'm going to talk about them a little bit later in the year. They haven't really played much anybody yet under Oklahoma State, uh, a team that also lost at home to a MAC team. And Baylor is going to have a major roster downturn in the, in the next couple of years. They, they ended up – their class last year was decimated uh, – this year, they only have two commitments total. They have a essentially an interim coaching staff. And I think they have bigger issues in the program to worry about right now than, than just football. So the four other teams, though, Oregon, Stanford, Michigan State, and TCU, those are kind of four of your major overachievers, the guys who recruit decently, but, but maybe not in an elite level, even though some of them are improving a little bit. And yet they, they get by on development, unique scheme, uh, coaching, guile, whatever it is you want to call it. Over the last four seasons, that foursome has combined to go 165 and 49. Over the last two, it's 92 and 17. That's really impressive. Um, 
92 and 17 is a record for a foursome that I would put up there against pretty much any team over the last two years in college football. Uh, that's that's remarkable. Now this year, in fairness, they were projected to be a little bit more down. Uh, they were projected by Vegas. If you added up their, their college ball win total, regular season wagers, I got these from fivedimes.com and saved them from the preseason. It would be 34 and 14. So that they were already expected to have a little bit of a down year. But I don't think anybody saw them starting out the gate this year and going 8-11 and 11 against FBS teams. If I had told you to start the year, Oregon, Stanford, Michigan State, and TCU would have a losing record against the FBS two weeks before Halloween, what would you tell me? You'd say, no way, no chance. And you'd be wrong. I would have been wrong, too. I'm not as high on these teams as other people are because I think recruiting matters more than a lot of folks think. But still, I didn't think they would be this bad. And so I, I took a look and I said, okay, is this something that is indicative of these programs on on the slide? Or maybe it's just a, a weird random year? And I don't know that there's one specific answer for, for every team out there, right? I mean, you have some teams who I think probably are on a slide. If you take a look at, at the Oregon Ducks under Mark Helfrich, I mean, they have probably... Um, best situation roster-wise for 2017-2018, and maybe the best chance to turn this around when when you factor in all different things. But they're they're 2-4. And And the more I I look at at Helfrich, the more I see Bill Stewart at West Virginia or Larry Coker at Miami, a guy who was given a pretty good roster, tasked with caretaking it, and the more, the, the further away he gets from from the previous really good coaches, players, in, in Larry Coker's case, Butch Davis, in Bill Stewart's case, Rich Rodriguez, the, the further he gets from that culture and, and from that, that roster that was left to him, the worse things get. I mean, first year, Oregon went to the college ball playoff, and I, I think lost two games that year. That's it, Ohio State and Arizona, right? They smashed Florida State, I know that. Next year, nine and four. This year, two and four, and, and probably not going to make a bowl game. That doesn't really bode all that well unless Oregon's able to get a really dynamite hire in there pretty quickly. With TCU, I think the, the question you have to ask here is have they lost the ability to play defense under Gary Patterson? Gary Patterson, you know, did did he sell his college ball soul to the to the offensive gods? in order to bring in that high-flying, Big 12-style offense. And, and in the last two years, it's really worked for him. But at the same time, he the, the defense has suffered a little bit. And this year, it was expected to bounce back. It was expected to be better, given that you had to play a lot of young players last year due to injury. And those guys are, are more seasoned this year, and, and they're back. But now, it's not happening. I mean, TCU's defense this year is, again, pretty bad. Certainly nowhere close to it like a national championship level defense. At Michigan State, you know, they, they lose Connor Cook, but they return, uh, I think, nine senior starters on offense. That's a very veteran team, one that you think should probably contend in the Big Ten at least for the, the title of, of the third best team in the Big Ten. And yet, they, they've already lost to Wisconsin, 
You mean no no shame in that necessarily, but a blowout loss. They lost to Indiana. They lost to BYU. They could lose to Northwestern this weekend potentially. I, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen, but it's it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that they're, they're favored by less than a touchdown at home against Northwestern. That, that doesn't really speak a lot to how the boys in the, in, in the desert feel about Michigan State. Uh, not at all. And then there's Stanford, which, you know, it's hard to understand why Stanford is so bad this year. They, they, they have to replace Kevin Hogan, who was a good college quarterback, certainly had really good numbers last year. Um, all these teams are, are replacing quarterbacks, it should be noted. And I think that is, if you are going to make the argument that this is a momentary one-year blip for them, it's that, hey, they had to replace good college quarterbacks. All of them did. But you return Christian McCaffrey. You return a decent number of playmakers on offense. I know you had to replace a lot of your defense, but you recruited fairly well there. Um, the offensive line is not as good, and you've had some injuries. But it, it does seem like maybe teams are a little more prepared this year for Christian McCaffrey, and, and the line not dominating quite as much is maybe exposing some, some other flaws in that offense. Uh, the, the passing game has no true downfield threats. Uh, if you watched how Washington played Stanford, if you watched how Washington State played Stanford, just absolutely no respect for those receivers. They, they walked everybody up on them and uh, with with no regard for, for what could happen over the top because Stanford receivers are, a lot of them are, are pretty slow and don't have the ability to really make you pay as long as your defensive backs have good recovery speed. I'm not saying all these teams are, are dropping off for good or even for a substantial period of time. Uh, I don't know that that's true. But in the piece, I, I asked, I said, okay, if if they do drop off, who's going to replace them? And I didn't get into this as much in the piece, but somebody brought it up to me. They said, you know, this this could be a situation, and I'll, I'll credit uh, Martin Rickman of, of Up Rock Sports here. He's their deputy editor. And he told me, he said, bud, you know, what could be happening here is that nobody really replaces these guys. This could just be a, a situation where college ball is, is, is really dominated by the, the bluest of the blue bloods for a little while. Uh, and that he posited, hey, maybe the middle class is actually growing, but the gap between the middle class in college football and the true elites is also growing. So maybe you're going to have fewer of those true elites, but maybe, you know, Maybe there's a lot more uh, mobility within that sort of middle class. Those teams that are maybe the top, between like your top 20, pro, between programs maybe rated number, I don't know, 20 to 70 or something like that. He may be on to something there. We might not see somebody actually step up and replace these teams in, in, in some of these spots. But but my article, I asked, okay, who, who could replace him if it happens? And you can read this on SPDation.com. Just click on the recruiting tab. It, it, I have it pinned into the first or second slot there uh, all weekend. I think I'll have it there for a decent portion of next week. I, I think it's a, an important and, and fun topic for, for readers to discuss, especially people who like sort of the economics and the, and the money ball of college football. And, and if you enjoy the inputs as well as the outputs, I, I think you'll enjoy this piece. Uh, in the Big Ten, Martin Rickman are, might really be on to something here. And, and the idea – is somebody actually going to step up and replace Michigan State insofar as being a, a national 
like playoff contender. Maybe, but but I'm not so sure. Uh, it might also just be that that Ohio State and Michigan are putting so much distance between themselves and the rest of the conference, and and certainly recruiting rankings, they seem to indicate that both those schools just keep getting better and better. Ohio State. That's the number one class in the country. I know Michigan has another top 10 class and it keeps getting better. They keep clearing room. I don't know that somebody necessarily steps up in the Big Ten to, to replace them. Now, there's the distinct possibility that something happens in the other division. But I, I don't necessarily think like Penn State or Maryland are all of a sudden going to step up and, and to have three true contenders in the Big Ten East. I think the, the, the greater chance is that something happens in the Big Ten West. Maybe that's Wisconsin. Now, they play really good defense. They don't lose I mean, hardly anybody important off this 2016 team. They don't have to play Ohio State in 2017. Uh, they get Iowa and Michigan in Camp Randall Stadium. You know, it's possible that, that, that Paul Christ and the Badgers, they could get back to winning 10-plus games a year uh, like they did in in seven of the last ten years, and if you look at their their non conference schedule over the next four seasons, it's it's really pretty terrible. They, they don't play anybody uh, of note, at least not on footballschedules.com. Maybe maybe that website's missing somebody, but as far as I can tell, they don't have any huge games that that you'd mark down as as sure losses or very likely losses coming in the non conference. That allows them potentially to if they could run the table. In the West, uh, and maybe one year beat a Michigan or something at home, it allows them to theoretically go into the Big Ten title game with a legitimate shot to make the college ball playoff if they can win that game. Uh, the downside for Wisconsin, of course, they only have 10% of their signees as four or five star recruits over the last four years. Is that actually enough to last the whole year? Is that enough to pull off some of those wins over the more elite teams in college football? Maybe not. Nebraska, on the other hand, in the same division, might be in a little better spot. Nebraska's recruiting very well right now. Uh, they have about double the amount of four and far, four and five star talent that Wisconsin does. Um, now they haven't beaten anybody this year. Oregon doesn't look nearly as good. They're only favored by a field goal this weekend at Indiana, which you may be listening to this before or after that game's played. But there's a distinct chance they could lose that game. A field goal is, is very little confidence from Las Vegas. Um, Nebraska does not necessarily have the talent, the talent to win a national title, but, you know, neither did the four teams that we, that we started discussing this article about. And they were still constantly in the na- national title discussion, at least in the nas- national college football media. And they got a lot of playoff consideration, and, and in some cases they, they made the playoff. So, I think when you combine that, Nebraska or Wisconsin do seem to have a decent shot to get a lot of of playoff talk and, and maybe take that spot for Michigan State in the coming years, especially because of, of the, the lesser difficult schedule. In the Pac-12, the replacement might already be here, and that replacement might be Washington. Um, thinking about this here, they're recruiting better and better. They, uh, they beat Stanford and Oregon, the, the two traditional Pac-12 North stalwarts, 114-27 to 27 in consecutive weeks. Um, they have a difference maker at quarterback and Jake Browning, who is oftentimes quarterback, is a really important factor when considering national championship odds and 
uh, the ability to, to outperform team talent, look to quarterback. Look also to coaching. Chris Peterson, a proven winner at Boise State. Uh, Washington seems like the class of the Pac-12. And it's important to note that that neither UCLA nor USC necessarily have their have their their stuff together, right? And that's that's a big deal because if you don't necessarily have, have your stuff together, then all that talent that, you, that you've you've amassed in the Pac-12 South, it might not matter so much. Washington might be on, on might be on the way to having a really nice nationally relevant national title conversation run here this year and, and over the next couple of years. The Big 12, though, I think is interesting. We discussed how we think Baylor's probably going to downturn because their roster is, is about to be in shambles. Uh, and how those wins that you you got to figure Baylor is going to not have in the coming years, they're going to go somewhere. And I'm guessing some of those are going to go to TCU. Some of those wins that Baylor might get in a normal year might go to Oklahoma, might go to Texas. I, I'm going to say that I don't think anybody else really steps up in the Big 12. It'll probably be a combination of status quo with with Oklahoma, Texas, and TCU maybe stepping up a little bit more. The wild card, of course, is, is if Tom Herman and Houston actually get that bid to join the Big 12. Now, I don't necessarily think they will, um, but if they do, I've already written about this, and, and you can you can Google it and find it on Espionation. Houston could easily become one of the top four or five programs in the Big 12 not just this year, because it clearly would be this year, but on a year-to-year basis. If they can keep Tom Herman and join the Big 12 with, with, with that recruiting area that they enjoy in Houston, absolutely possible. So if Houston doesn't join, I think it'll be status quo, but an interesting prospect there. And in the ACC, ACC really doesn't have a an overachiever who's falling out. They, they didn't have anybody in that initial list, but Louisville kind of doesn't care. They have a true commitment to winning for, for the administration. They seem to be willing to take anybody uh, on the transfer market. Rock, rock, rock bottom admission standards, excellent coaching, really good evaluate, really good evaluators, and they have a generational quarterback talent in Lamar Jackson, who has turned out so so well for Bobby Petrino. Um, Louisville is absolutely in the conversation. But like in the Big Ten, you have those those two heavies that you have to consistently fight in Florida State and Clemson. Much like in the Big Ten, you have Ohio State and Michigan. If you're looking at the ACC long-term, it might actually be better to look at a Virginia Tech or Miami, both of which could, you know, I, I think you can argue, have benefited already from upgrades in coaching, and both of which could be recruiting a lot better than they were under Al Golden and under the latter years of Frank Beamer. I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Do you think that for, that uh, that those four teams are going to fall? Do you think just one or two of them? Which ones? And if so, do you think other teams are going to take up, kind of step up and take their place? And if so, who do you think might? Who do you think is the next overachiever to be mentioned consistently in the national title conversation year in and year out? Or, or maybe maybe it won't happen at all. Maybe. It'll just be more of the the bluest of the blue bloods. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I mentioned Washington earlier, and certainly I think they they merit a little more discussion after their great uh, two wins over the last two weeks. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, that's a region that that is you know 
it, it gone a quarter century now without a national title. You have to do a couple things well. You, you have to scout really well. You have to make sure that you sign a disproportionate amount of talent in your own backyard. And you have to be able to go national at times as well, which is tough because that's, that's a long trip for a lot of kids. But Washington is doing that well. They already have commitments from two of the top players in their state this year, uh, running back uh, Salvana Med and then tight end Hunter Bryant. And they have a legitimate shot as well uh, to land Foster Sorrell, who I think is the number one player in the country at offensive tackle. And then also uh, uh, Henry Bayanvalu, who is a really good player, uh, phenomenal talent. Not only that, they have a commitment from the number one player in the state of Oregon. So that you're really starting to see them chip away at Oregon's recruiting dominance in the Pacific Northwest. That's going to be important if they want to keep this thing rolling. Um, Washington is is also laying the groundwork to have a nice 2018 class. I mean, quarterback Jacob Sermon is is one of the better quarterbacks in the country that we've seen for the class of 2018, uh, and, and I think that that or or that that Washington will continue to do really well up there if Oregon doesn't either a get things turned around under Mark Helfrick or b get things turned around under somebody else and quickly. You could see Washington have a sustained period of dominance there in the Pacific Northwest, uh, much like Chris Peterson did at Boise. That's uh, a program that seems to be investing heavily in winning, and uh, and that's it, I think it's kind of the obvious choice now if you're in the, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, especially if you don't have the grades to get in Stanford. Uh, in other news, we saw that Ohio State got a visit from Donovan Peoples-Jones, arguably the number one receiver in the class of 2017 out of Detroit's uh, Cass Tech. Had some positive positive things to say about the visit to a number of, of outlets. Uh, ultimately, I, I do think that Michigan will be his destination. I don't see Jim Harbaugh losing out on keeping a player of that caliber in state. But, but, but it's worth noting, Ohio State has a couple guys from Cast Tech on that roster, including running back Mike Weber. So if any school has a shot, maybe it is Ohio State. If, if you look closely, though, this was a change visit. Not a lot of kids were impacted by by, uh, by Hurricane Matthew, but Peoples Jones was. He was actually scheduled to come down and visit Florida, a school that is in desperate need of playmakers. And, and because of Hurricane Matthew, uh, the game against LSU got canceled for the Gators and, and uh, is now actually going to be played at LSU, and, and LSU is going to come back and play two in a row at Florida in 2017-2018. But Peoples-Jones was not able to visit. Also in the Washington thing, uh, they were actually able to score that huge victory uh, in Oregon over the Ducks in front of a ton of top recruits. If, if you go and, and look on, on some of the recruiting websites, they have the uh, the list of visitors who were checking out the Ducks in that game. Joseph Lewis, arguably the number one receiver in the country. Uh, Elijah Molden. Henry Bianvalu, obviously we mentioned him before. Nate McBride, who's one of the top inside linebackers in the country uh, out of the Southeast. Uh, Travis Etienne. And... Uh, uh, running back Darian Felix, a Fort Myers native down by me here in Florida. Those are uh, those are, are big-time players who just saw Oregon get absolutely embarrassed against Washington. 
That's that's not a big deal. That's a huge deal. You don't want to see a team get blown out at home. If a team loses at home in a good atmosphere, that's fine. If I'm the coaching staff, I can say, hey, you can see how much we need you. You can be the difference between a win and a loss in this stadium. But on the other hand, if, if I see as a recruit the team's getting blown out and, and we see all these fans streaming out of the stadium at halftime, that's that sends a bad message. And some of those kids won't be back to Oregon and, and probably have no shot to real, really sign with Oregon at this point. Didn't take any questions this week. Next week, we'll certainly get back to doing questions. If you want to, if you want to ask some questions, please hit me up on Twitter. That's at SBN Recruiting. Check out all the great recruiting content we have there on the website, SBNation.com. Click the recruiting tab, and you'll be right there. Thanks again for listening, guys, and uh, any suggestions for the show, any places you want to hear this. I know we're now on iTunes, I believe, and SoundCloud, so if you, if you want this on um, maybe Google Play Music or something, just holler at me, and I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. Until then, everybody have a great weekend. Be safe, and uh, hey, recruiting matters.